This podcast comes with a content warning for anyone affected by cancer. We cover heavy topics and themes, so if you need a debrief, please call the recommended support line in our bio. We also deal with a lot of different experiences and medical talk. This isn't health advice. If anything stands out to you, check in with a trusted health professional. On the Down Low is brought to you by ANSGOG, the peak national gynaecological cancer research organisation for Australia and New Zealand. Click the link in our bio to learn how you can also help women affected by gynaecological cancer to live better and live longer. And my words to Mark were, I've got 12 months to live. I'm going to have the best time ever and that's my plan Welcome to On The Down Low, speaking up about ovarian cancer. I'm Alison Dance. In our last episode, we explored undergoing treatment for ovarian cancer. But while the surgery scars are only beginning to heal, there's a new reality to face, and not just for our women. The impact of a cancer diagnosis extends far beyond the changes to one's body. Along with the physical toll from surgery and treatment comes profound changes to lifestyle and relationships. For many of us, a mother is the powerhouse of our family. So when her diagnosis hits, the shockwave radiates out. On what was already a difficult journey, Jacinta found telling her children was by far the hardest step. So once we had that plan, that's when we told them. Um, but they were they knew there was something wrong, obviously, but they were very upset and um, very frightened. How was and, that and for you, having to tell them that? Oh, look, it's terrible. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's terrible because you're also telling my daughter because, we, you, know, you know, it has huge implications for her anyway. Um, at that time, I didn't know also it would have implications for, for our son because I didn't understand quite the connection between ovarian and, and uh, colorectal cancers at that time or that, you know, it might impact his children when he has kids. So we were sort of protected from all of that. My daughter, her first thing was, you know, are you terminal? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, you know, we're, we're all going to die. <laughs> and she was like... <laughs> That isn't what I asked. <laughs> so that was pretty upsetting. I said, oh, no, excellent medical treatments, an excellent team. And, and that's true. I, I had real confidence in the medical team. It is really hard and scary. I had a similar chat with my mum, Pauline, who found this was one area of the journey she could control. It's my diagnosis. I need to handle it how I want it handled. And I want to tell our children in person. I don't want them to hear over the phone. Yeah, you kind of start figuring out something's happening then when you're sitting at the table with your mum and dad, like rather than the couch, and they're launching into a bit of a, you know, we've, we've had some tests. And I just went, who is it? What is it? Yeah. What have you got? There's <laughs> obviously something bad. And if you think it's hard talking to adult children, what must it be like to break the news to young kids? So... When they were younger, emotionally, they didn't know what it meant. They just knew mummy had cancer and that I'd lost my hair and that I had to be careful with germs and I couldn't pick them up. Um, but look, we've never sat down and said, mummy's going to die way before any of us are ready because there's no need, especially my eldest. You know, there's been times I've fainted or... I've been, I get really bad cramps from drugs. Sometimes I'm screaming in agony in the middle of the night and you can just see she gets quite um, 
It really, really affects her, yeah. And I'm sure at school they talk about, you know, oh, your mum's going to die. Kids are brutal. <laughs> they are. <laughs> and they would all talk about people dying. So, but, you know, my girls wear the till ribbon on, on the ribbon day. They, my eldest daughter, entrepreneur, she actually collected money. <laughs> At the school to sold I am I liking this girl. She's going to be a CEO. <laughs> I didn't even, yeah, she is. I didn't even know. I'm like, oh, you can't do that. She's like, oh, look, how, look how much I've got. I was like, oh, okay, that's really good. <laughs> how is normal life for you? We've talked about your relationship with the kids. How does that uh, this affect with your relationship with your husband and intimacy, especially when your body is so severely affected? Yeah, I wouldn't say my sex drive is through the roof, but um, (laughs) we still have a good sex life and we still are functioning quite normally. Um, Thanks to HRT. I don't know if that is that what you were asking or if I just given too much information. (laughs) (laughs) We love too much information. And yes, HRT or hormone replacement therapy is exactly what I was asking about. Yeah, yes. You know, so I think like it, yeah, look, I don't, yeah, it is tricky because your ovaries are, they're at the core of what it feels like to be a woman, right? It's like if a man had his testicles removed and even though you can't see your ovaries, they're linked to your libido, when you're ovulating, to fertility. I was very fortunate that I'd already just literally had my family. But, you know, going into menopause at 39, you know, it's not its not great because you just, you don't have the same libido and suddenly I feel like a, I feel like an old woman, you know, I'm a catalogue of... Um, side effects, arthritis, neuropathy, fatigue. I joke with my husband that I'm living, like we're living the retired life, but as if we're raising grandchildren. (laughs) And we've just skipped like 40 years in the middle, you know, we're just kind of 20, 30 years in the middle. So we're sort of living this retired life now. But um, at the middle of your age, you think, middle of your life, you know, your your job's just taking off. You're, um, you know, you've got your family, you're starting to get financially secure, all these things. And yet, no, you're, um, I've been, that's just sort of been ripped right up from under me. And I'm now at the end of my life. But um, I think a great thing as well is perspective. I'm very lucky. I have a very good relationship and my husband is an extraordinary man. And Look, it's not been easy the whole time, but we have a very open and honest relationship. We've seeked counselling when we've needed to, which I think every patient, cancer patient should have and their family should be offered um, psychology or counselling appointments. And um, I guess I am quite vain, like vainer than I thought I was. So it's like, oh, I'm not the same as I used to be. But then I think, oh, really? Like when you're facing your mortality, you realise that that stuff doesn't really matter. And have you found ways in yourself to reclaim that feeling of womanhood and to try not to feel, you know, to be able to feel the age that you are? So when I was younger, I used to be a professional belly dancer. Oh, very for cool. For a number of years, yeah. <laughs> and um, Scientist slash professional belly dancer. Belly Amazing. Dancer. Yes, what a combo. Yes, I know. If I was Tinder existed back then, it would have been great on my <laughs> Tinder profile. But I... Um, I had not done that for a very long time and I got back into that just after I finished chemo. So I was still, after surgery, still couldn't stand up straight. My posture was terrible, had neuropathy, I was still bald. That was confronting because my body couldn't move the way it used to, but it made me feel womanly again, you know, and going into that class with all these different women of different shapes and sizes, it's so empowering and um, supportive because your body lets you down, right? The organs that give life are actually taking my life away. And you feel this real 
um, betrayal by your body and to then just be able to connect with your body again and also because it's it's a source of pain now you know so much pain from these these grueling drugs I'm on because I think by doing things like swimming and dancing and Pilates and the gym it makes me celebrate my body and push my body and be able to say okay this is my body and it's let me down but it's beautiful with its scars still and it's you know it's amazing how it's been able to heal from that surgery and that chemo it's absolutely phenomenal as you can imagine when your insides are now on the outside that can take some getting used to for you and your partner certainly uh Having the bag is not romantic. Let me just be really clear about that. But also having that surgery, there's nothing romantic about that big scar and all those things. That's Jacinta. You'll recall from last episode, she had a temporary stoma. And I think he was a little bit, he didn't want to hurt me. He he didn't want to make any, um, uh, you know, he really put his own wishes and, and, and needs aside and not just sort of intimate wishes on, or, or needs, but also just he took over the house. He, he spent a lot more time relating to the kids, but he, he stepped up into a whole lot of that space that I would have normally have, have done. And I, I notice now that as I'm much um, healthier, he's stepping back and, and, and that's good because I need to be doing those things. I mean, I, I'm pleased that the the bag is gone, I, I, and I think to uh, recommence that intimate relationship is really important. Um, again, at the risk of too much information, my hormones are. I have to put a bit of effort in, into feeling romantic because those hormones are not as, as you know that lib- libidinal energy isn't so vibrant, but it is coming back, and I think as I stop with the PARP inhibitor, I can already feel more um, interest in the world in general. You know, I think that couple relationship is absolutely essential. So we we have to protect that. And I'm I'm enormously grateful to him. You know, we've come through a really difficult time. I'm not sure I would have been so generous as he has been. You know, I don't, you know, when he's sick, I'm not that sympathetic. So it's (laughs) probably... (laughs) <laughs> I got the good end of the deal, I think. So. Oh, thank you for being so open with us on that. I think that's um, really valuable to you. I won't let him listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Living with cancer is a test for any relationship. For a cancer affecting the down low, it often means sharing more than you'd ever like to. Well, I can tell you, Ali, I guess our vintage is... You know, our bodily functions are not something we discuss. (laughs) My husband has had to see more stuff than he ever really needed to see. That's Anne. I have had to literally call him from my driveway, sitting in my car, asking him to bring me a towel because I have poo or pooed my pants. Now, I don't know that any partner really wants to see that. And, of course, it affects him. I mean, I get over it. But, you know, it does affect him. And as far as uh, intimacy goes, you know, it certainly does affect your relationship. And if you did not have 
a rock-solid relationship, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, then I really believe it would be unusual not to affect the relationship. How did you guys work through that and and play with that balance between a carer and a husband? My husband's amazing. He just leaves me alone. (laughs) Smart man. (laughs) Yes, very smart man. Happy wife, happy life. No, he has never pushed me to do anything. If I wanted to sit on the couch all day, he would let me sit on the couch all day. I mean, I have never been unwell enough to go to bed. But I have had some days where I've sat a fair bit of the day. Whereas my nature would be saying, come on, you know, why don't we go for a walk? You know, let's get some fresh air. Well, if he'd said that to me, I probably could have punched him in the nose (laughs) on those days when I wasn't feeling great. So he knows me well. And I would like to think he knows me well enough to know I'm not going to do anything silly Um, and also I'm not going to have a pity party hopefully (laughs) hopefully (laughs) we have no time for pity parties only actual parties that's right (laughs) did you find it it did affect your friendships as well and and your ability to socialize and keep those contacts oh I have been very blessed blessed beyond belief I have heard of women, which I only heard this recently, of women who have lost friends because of their diagnosis. I think I've gained friends because of my diagnosis. I'm, um, I'm a Christian, and so I have a church family as well as my own family, and they pr- have prayed me through the last six years and I know not everyone is a believer, and I know every, many people have their own forms of spirituality, but my faith and my Christian friends and non-Christian friends, um, it's amazing how they may never go to church and they may never pray, but they will say, you know, I, I can pray, for, I can say a prayer for you, and that is so touching To me, that is the most beautiful gift that someone would pray for me. So I initially, I had a couple of people who didn't know what to say, so said nothing, and that's okay. That is totally okay. But I'd say 98% wanted to know how I was doing, and they rejoiced with me when I was rejoicing. And when I wasn't 100%, they would pray for me. (laughs) Strong family and friend relationships can be really valuable if you're hit with a diagnosis. It's still important to acknowledge often survivors find themselves needing to be the strong one for others. During the time I felt like I had to be the strong one, like I had to always sort of say, yeah, I'm okay, like, like, let's do this, I'm not worried, Um, it's going to be okay. That's gal for me. I think people around me needed to hear that because they loved and cared about me so much that 
it hurt them to see me going through this. But I think that also meant it, it makes it hard for me to be vulnerable all the time because I'm so used to putting up this wall of like, yes, I'm fine. Like, let's be optimistic. Like, let's just move forward with things. So, I mean, I think to a degree I'm still that way. So I think, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. Like I'm sure it has its good aspects as well, but I do think it's a little bit problematic that I think you do need space to grieve when you go through something like that. And how is it going telling your friends at this point? I mean, you just haven't shown up to school basically. Um, yeah. And then suddenly yeah. into all this time of recovery. How did you navigate that? Well, a couple of my friends visited during the time and I guess we didn't talk too much about what was happening in particular. It was just nice to have them there and um, just talk about other things in general. I think I do imagine it was quite difficult for them to navigate the situation as well. I mean, I did find I had to, I feel like I had to comfort other people. And that was sort of a theme throughout the cancer journey. As much as people were so supportive and there, like not discounting that, I do feel like I had to protect other people. Um, And that's hugely shaped who I think I am as a person now. Being the strong one despite her cancer diagnosis was a challenge Claire had to face head-on with her husband, Mark, as they navigated their new roles as patient and carer. I was quite harsh. In fact, it was probably horrible. And my words to Mark were, I've got 12 months to live. I am going to have a pretty good next 12 months. I'm going to have the best time ever, and that's my plan And you need to pull yourself together because I know I can cope with this, but I can't cope with looking after you and trying to hold you up as well. I need you to try and hold yourself up, which never happened. (laughs) He he kept falling apart. (laughs) And I always say one very, very difficult thing about terminal cancer is not being able to deal with your own emotions. I didn't. I had no time to deal with my own, own emotions because my husband was falling apart in front of me, and I had to get him sorted. So I didn't deal with my emotions. Yeah, I think that is a challenge. Did it change the relationship when you have this, you know, huge cloud? Mm. Yes, very much. Yeah. Our first day of chemo, the nurse sat us down and she said, "Cancer will make or break your relationship." Yeah. And we said. We've been married 15 years at that point and we had never had a bad... We've never had an argument. We've always got on well. We're best friends. We said, that's not us. It's not going to break us. Mm. But it nearly did. It's the hardest thing any couple could go through is one of your, your wife or your husband being diagnosed with a terminal illness. It's not something you expect. It's yeah, it was yeah, it was really difficult, especially in the early days. Mark did fall apart, but he was the most wonderful nurse, housekeeper, cleaner, cook. He did absolutely everything for me. He kept me alive. Basically, he kept me alive. There was days I couldn't get out of bed and he'd practically lift me out and make me walk round the block he was amazing when he was looking after me he was strong when it came to going out and and having fun which was my plan he couldn't have fun he was miserable 
right? Yeah. Well, I've been getting told for quite a while that I needed help. And I was basically had my head in the sand. And we went to an ovarian cancer support meeting in Melbourne. And the husbands were there. And that was my light bulb moment. There was these other guys talking about how they were struggling. And I thought, that's me. That's me. People have been right all this time telling me that I need help. And that was it. And I ended up... Uh, contacted Cancer Council in WA and put me in contact with a psychologist and I still see him once a month. I go and see a psychologist and just blurt out whatever I want to him and it, that helped me massively. Claire says she's seen, said I was like a different person. Amazing and, th- and that's often so hard for people to do, particularly for men. There is that stereotype of you must be the rock and you must be the strong one. You can't yep. cry and break down. So. Yeah. Now, I know, Mark, um, one thing that sort of sticks with you is that people, um, we often hear, you don't look sick, uh, things are looking good, and you've got that message that people only really see the 1% of what's going on. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean yeah. by that? Look, when we see friends, Claire's generally at her best. She's got some makeup on, she's dressed, but and I'm, I'm probably looking better than what I look most times. People don't realise that's only 1% of the whole cancer. What Claire's going through, what I'm going through. People don't see the some nights were up all night. Uh, I'll give you an instance. There was one night Claire was up. She had like really bad pains in her chest. She thought she was having a heart attack. I wanted to take her to hospital. She wouldn't go because of COVID. She was scared of catching COVID. If she says she gets COVID in hospital, she would be isolated. I wouldn't be allowed to come and see her. So she basically said to me, don't phone an ambulance. Uh, I just want to die in bed of a heart attack. And that is not something that you expect to hear. And I really struggled dealing with that, saying that I was just... I was just to leave my wife lying there in pain and just let her die. That's nobody should be nobody should go through that. People, it doesn't annoy me, but when people say, "Oh, you look great," but people don't see, they only see the it's like an iceberg. They only see the tip of the iceberg. They don't see what's underneath. What things would you like them to be able to see more on that iceberg? And Mark's always said, they don't see the days, the weeks, and sometimes the months that I've been lying in bed. Mm. They only see the one day that I've got up Mm. and got out, put on my false face and, you know, try not to let my that false face slip. What's happening with your friends and family at this time? We've talked about how we've made some new ones. Are we losing some along the way? How do you navigate those kinds of relationships? You lose a lot of friends and you gain a lot of friends. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you have lost some? Did people just not know how to react and disappeared? How did we lose people along the way? For about the first two years, or certainly the first year, mm. The support we got was amazing. amazing. Wonder friends were all wonderful. And our acquaintances were all absolutely wonderful. But as I put it, the longer you live, some of your better friends get compassion fatigue. And if there's anyone listening to the podcast who doesn't have ovarian cancer and might have a friend or a family member with ovarian cancer, just 
be there for them. The small things that you can do for your friend, like cooking a meal, like my neighbour bring, brings in sugar-free cookies and stuff that she bakes. These little things go a long, long way. They are a help because sometimes I'm so sick in bed. Mark's been doing every job but the, in the house and everything and someone turns rocks up at your door with a, a meal for you that evening. You've no idea how wonderful that is. So I say to people out there, if your friend's going through cancer, they're not looking for you to fix their cancer. They're not looking for you to come up with some some of these crazy ideas that they come up with of what's going to cure your cancer. (laughs) Just be there for them and listen to them. Just listening is the best thing you can do, is open your heart and just listen to them. Not ask them how they are and not take it in listen to them and that's all Up next on the down low Being from the country this city is quite terrifying to drive through for us I may have passed that gene on to my children. So they've gone from like, yay, I'm cancer-free, to, oh, but I've got clear cell ovarian cancer, which is one of the deadliest. There is grounds for more optimism. We're talking mutants, aeroplane vomits, and clubbing in Glasgow. Yep, it's Shades of Teal, nuance in ovarian cancer. We covered some difficult ground this episode, so a reminder there's a link to a recommended support line in our bio and chat to your trusted health professional for any medical advice. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, leave a comment and share. Plus, join the conversation with us on social media. On the Download Season 1 is sponsored by the 2021 Sydney Westfield Local Hero Program and is written, edited and produced by Nyasha Nyakwangama and me, Alison Dance. Let's speak up about ovarian cancer. 